Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. I'm James Harding. I'm the editor of Tortoise and the host of The News Meeting. It's the podcast where we try and make sense of what should be leading the news with three people who each come and pitch the story that they think matters the most. On the latest episode, we're joined by the journalist, historian and author Satnam Sanghera. Like almost everyone, we go down the rabbit hole of that Princess of Wales photo editing story, and then Satnam explains why he thinks the Church of England paying reparations for its links to slavery should really be leading the news. Just search for Tortoise News wherever you get your podcasts and follow the feed so you don't miss an episode. Back at the end of July, something terrible happened at a prison camp where Russian security forces had taken thousands of Ukrainian prisoners of war. Dozens and dozens of prisoners were killed. 53 that we've been told about, and maybe more. It didn't take long for the news to come out. And then the Russian authorities started to talk about what had happened in ways, I think it's fair to say, had become normal for them, and tried to pass the whole thing off as a regular, horrible accident of war. They put out a half-hearted explanation without seeming to worry if it really added up or not. They shipped in a clapped-out American actor, someone who hangs out with Vladimir Putin now and then, apparently, and he made a little propaganda film with his analysis of events. I mean, we are in the exact place where Heimars came in. One of the Nazis that was killed is a Nazi that was just starting to talk a lot about Zelensky. I wonder if that's why this guy got rocketed and killed. Steven Seagal, ladies and gentlemen. Russia blamed the Ukrainians for everything. It felt deliberately routine. The message was, nothing to see here, nothing out of the ordinary. It didn't work, of course, in most of the world anyway. A medium-sized storm blew up. People who didn't want to buy the idea that it can be normal for 50 people to burn to death, because that's what happened, shouted for an investigation. And I remember making a note to myself at the time, that this was a moment we shouldn't just let go by. It could be one of the worst atrocities of this awful war. But the storm lasted for a week or two like most of them do. Some good people did great work with satellite pictures and combing through social media chat to piece together a picture of events as best they could. But it became obvious pretty quickly that the UN wasn't going to be allowed into the prison to do an investigation, so the whole thing looked blocked. Until earlier this month, actually, when a woman by the name of Rosemary DiCarlo, the UN's Under-Secretary-General for Political Affairs, stood up in front of the Security Council. Mr President, the fact-finding mission is set to deploy in the coming days to look into the incident on 29 July that led to the death of 53 Ukrainian prisoners of war. Between 75 and 130 more were injured. I want to thank Ukraine and Russia for their constructive approach in enabling preparations for the mission. We count on their continued support. So finally, perhaps, there was a chance we'd find out some more. And we tried to jump on it. My colleagues Nina Curiata, Amy Harper and I started getting hold of some of the prisoners' families. We talked to the Red Cross 
to the government in Ukraine, to the Russian authorities, the separatists in the east of Ukraine, and most of all to the UN. If they were going in, could we go with them? If not literally, then at least virtually. Could we get in while this gate into the prison seemed at least half open? Into Alenivka. Nina, you're, you're from Ukraine, right? But you're not from this part of it. Yes, I'm not from Donetsk region. Which part are you from? I'm from Odessa region in Odessa the south. Okay. And Donetsk region is in the east. And this region is mostly occupied by Russia since 2014. If I'm looking at a map of Ukraine and looking for Olenivka, where should I be looking? It's on the right side of Ukrainian map. And Olenivka prison or colony is in Donetsk region in the district of Olnavaha in the village of Olenivka, and that is why they call it Olenivka. When we're talking about uh, Olenivka, we're talking about quite a big place, aren't we? The, the, the prison itself. Yes, it's a huge place. Uh, there is like six barracks. Uh, every barrack is two floors building with a lot of uh, cells for a few people each. It is in the field uh, surrounded with the wire. It's quite a frightening place even to look at. There are towers in every hundred meters. And it, from what I've seen, it looks pretty run down. Yes, it wasn't in use since 2017. And there was literally nothing in the cells. And they've been given only rotted mattresses with buds and worms in them. And now people came and uh, the conditions were really, really insane. What we know for sure about what happened in Alenivka is pretty thin stuff. It probably doesn't amount to much more than this. At about 11 o'clock at night on July the 29th this year, a fierce fire broke out in an old industrial building inside the prison where some prisoners of war were being held. Officially, as I said, 53 prisoners died, but we've got no way of knowing if that's the true figure. There certainly seem to have been a lot of injuries as well. Over the next day or two, pictures of the inside of the building after the fire started to come out. You can see the metal bunks still mostly in neat rows. The first time I looked at them, I didn't spot anything out of the ordinary. It actually took a second or two before I noticed the charred skeletons lying down on a few of the beds. And then there's the walls, just breeze blocks, cinder blocks. They're still standing. And the roof, which is a sheet of corrugated iron, is dangling down in places, but it's mostly still there. And that's about it, as far as hard facts go. Russia has actually blamed Ukraine for this attack. The Russian Defence Ministry says that the attack was carried out by Ukraine using US-made HIMARS rocket systems. A spokesman for Moscow-backed separatists said Ukrainian forces attacked after the prisoners of war started talking about crimes conducted by their own military. So there was an explanation given by the Russians of what happened, but it doesn't feel like a good use of our time to dwell on it for too long. What they said was that the Ukrainians fired a single massively powerful rocket, a HIMARS rocket, which hit that building dead centre and killed all those prisoners, their own soldiers, without knocking the walls down or blowing the roof off. Other people have gone to the trouble of lining up military experts to say that just doesn't make sense. But the truth is, it wouldn't make sense to a 10-year-old. There are plenty of images around of what a HIMARS rocket does. It flattens things. It leaves a huge hole in the ground. None of that happened at Alenivka. And then, just a few days after Rosemary DiCarlo said the UN was going into Alenivka to investigate, 
I was in the middle of interviewing a man called Konstantin Velichko, who we'll hear from in a minute, when Nina WhatsApp me to say it was all off. The UN wasn't getting in after all. We still don't have a very good explanation for what changed. But actually, by then, a different story was already starting to emerge. Not about exactly what happened at Alenivka, but from talking to ex-prisoners and politicians, by looking at what was said in public on private telegram channels, by piecing together events from the siege of Mariupol to the deaths at Alenivka. A story about how the ground can be prepared systematically for an atrocity to take place. How, even if here and now we don't have the facts to say for sure, that at least 53 people were murdered at Alenivka and a war crime took place there. Everything was done to create the conditions in which both those things could happen, so that a crime became likely, maybe not inevitable, but predictable. I'm Kerry Thomas, and this is A Crime in the Making, a slow newscast from Tortoise. normal times, it's quite a good road from Mariupol to Alenivka. It's 50 miles or so and you could drive it in not much more than an hour. When Russia invaded Ukraine, Mariupol was one of the first places it had in its sights. So the siege of Mariupol began effectively on the day of the invasion, February the 24th. And within a week or so, the city was completely surrounded. The horrors started to pile up. No relief in sight for the city of Mariupol where more than 100,000 people are still trapped. It is a city without water, without access to food, without communications, without power. A city reduced to ruins by constant Russian bombardment. A city which cannot even properly bury its dead. Staying alive in Mariupol has meant descending into basements and bomb shelters at night, and then taking your chances outside during the day. By the 5th of March, the International Red Cross was making more and more desperate pleas for hundreds of thousands of civilians still trapped in Mariupol to be evacuated. And that's where Konstantin comes in. On the 28th of March, we uh, arrived to the last block post uh, in front of Mariupol. He's an IT guy, volunteering on a bus plastered with Red Cross logos, going into Mariupol to pull people out. It's a similar journey to ones he's made before, but something changes this time. Russian militaries asked us to stop our bus and uh, show our documents and started to asking us uh, different, uh, very strange questions. Uh, why we are evacuating people for the money? Uh, why we are changing our documents with uh, some military troops and so on, so on and so on. And they even don't want to hear our answers. So with automats, automatic rifles pointing at him, Konstantin is sent along that short road from Mariupol to Alenivka. By the way, not just in first impression of Alenivka, on, on our way to Alenivka, we have very, very many impressions. Then they kicked us, then they used, uh, they told us we are terrorists, then they doesn't give us food, doesn't give us water. But in Alenivka, uh, the most I uh, will remember, I think, all my next life, Alenivka was a dump. Almost broken buildings. Broken toilets, no food, no medicine. None of what many of us would consider the essentials of life. It was like a, a shit on the walls. The prisoners were beaten, tortured regularly. They beat us by legs, they beat us by arms, 
Screams echoed through the buildings. I was uh, hearing screamings of people. Konstantin saw one man beaten to death. I saw uh, one of such cases by my own eyes. They die because they kick them until death. It's the beginning of April, and Konstantin is lost to the world in this squalid and lawless place. Early April was important to Vladimir Putin, as well as Konstantin. Up around Kyiv, far from Alenivka, the tide started to turn against the Russian invasion. As it went out, it revealed all kinds of horrors. Images at the weekend from the town of Bucha following the retreat of Russian forces showed the bodies of civilians lying in the streets. Ukrainian human rights officials now say a mass grave near a church may contain as many as 300 bodies. Even before the war, hardliners in Moscow were demonising Ukrainians as Nazis and worse. But now, with blood on the army's nose around Kyiv and the siege of Mariupol dragging on unforgivably, the language ratcheted up again. A fairly senior politician by the name of Leonid Slutsky, the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee of the Russian Parliament, the Duma, called the defenders of Mariupol animals in human form and said they should be executed, not taken prisoner. The Russian embassy in London put out a tweet saying, as of militants, we'll hear more about them in a minute, deserve execution not by firing squad but by hanging because they're not real soldiers. They deserve a humiliating death. Twitter took that down eventually because it violated their rules on hate speech, but it was just the tip of the iceberg. By the middle of April, there were just a few pockets of resistance left in Mariupol, and one main one the giant steelworks at Azovstal. And the Azovstal steel plant, where Ukrainian military and civilians are holed up by the hundreds, is the site of the last stand there. Despite being completely outnumbered, they continue to hold out here, in one of the largest steel plants in Europe. For now, the soldiers owe their survival to the gigantic network of underground tunnels where they've sheltered for several weeks. Some regular Ukrainian soldiers were holed up there, but the main fighting force was a notorious unit, the Azov Regiment. We didn't speak with him, just um, texting, messaging. I was very careful how how to ask about uh, these deathly dangerous things. It was like torture, you know. And I uh, just asked him if they have food or water and um, ammunition. And he always answered me, yes, yes, everything is good. I never work so close like in this moment of our lives. On the other end of Ala Samolenko's text messages was her son Ilya, an intelligence officer in the Azov regiment, a giant of a man missing his left hand and his right eye after fighting Russian separatists in eastern Ukraine in 2015. He explained me something about the regiment. When he talked to his mother, Ilya painted a very particular picture of the Azov regiment. Safety of their soldiers. This unit is built under absolutely uh, opposite to ex-USSR army rules and traditions and trying to incorporate uh, foreign best practice, practice this possibility to, to build absolutely new army for Ukraine. That's not how the rest of the world has seen Azov. Not always, anyway. Back in 2014, a Guardian reporter spent time with Azov 
and found it riddled with far-right attitudes, even outright Nazi sympathies. So, Nina, the, the Azov Regiment, it, it's fair to say, isn't it, that it's had problems in the past with extremism? I would say that it had some connections at the very beginning because uh, it has been founded by a man with a like, far-right ideology profile, Andriy Bilecki, who founded it in May of 2014. It was one of the volunteer battalions uh, who wanted to defend Ukraine from the Russian invasion in 2014. There were a few such battalions. This battalion was incorporated into the Ministry of Internal Affairs. It was a special police battalion officially. And Andriy Bilecki was in charge of that battalion for only a few months in 2014. In the autumn, uh, the government incorporated that battalion to the National Guard. The battalion has got a new commander and they got rid of all uh, people connected with far-right ideology from 2014 till 2017. And it was a smaller battalion at the beginning. There were about uh, 900 people. And during all these eight years of Russian occupation in the east of Ukraine, there were people who wanted to defend their land. Uh, it is the eastern part of Ukraine. There are mostly Russian speakers. There are a lot of Ukrainians, Russians, Jewish and Crimean Tatars in this battalion who coexist normally and they function as, as one unit. Uh, so I wouldn't say it's fair to say now that this is a far-right battalion. Yeah. So it's founded by a man with, with these far-right connections. But w what does the Ukrainian government say about it now? It's a regular regiment of the National Guard. It has a number amongst all other regiments in National Guard. So they treat them as uh, any other National Guard regiment. That's it. And in Ukraine, people hugely uh, support uh, Azov and call them heroes because we all seen the siege of Mariupol and their heroic resistance uh, in the uh, Azov-style plant. And probably you remember the Eurovision where the Ukrainian music band uh, uh, claimed from the stage, please free Azov, help Azov. And it was widely supported in Ukraine. Now Ukrainian society supports Azov and uh, calls them heroes because of their resistance. And you, because you've spent some time thinking about this recently, you're you're happy that Azov is a has got rid of its extremist past, that it is now a regular part of the regular army, and that and that people are right to think of them as heroes. Yes, absolutely. And I have to say that uh, even European experts uh, who studied Azov and its history, uh, they say that yes, they were far right people. But we cannot call them neo-Nazi. There is a difference. However much Azov has been reformed, the fact that it was holding out against the Russian siege at the Azov-style steel plant is an important piece of the Elenivka jigsaw. All of those feverish, unfounded Russian allegations that Ukraine was a hotbed of Nazism had found a focus in a regiment which did have an extremist past. If ever Russia were to single out a group of soldiers to murder, these guys would be top of the list. We were accused as the uh, paramilitary neo-Nazi bandits and all this blah, blah, blah bullshit. Uh, but we were the only uh, like far-right radicals, yes. But only one thing where we were radical is the primary, our primary order is to defend the country. That's Ilya fronting up for Azov at a press conference on May the 8th. 
12 days before the fighters at Azovstal finally surrendered. He talked to his mum over those days, thinking he knew what was coming. It would be just not so, not so tough and not so vulgar and brutal. I don't know what, what, uh, what gives uh, them this um, face. And in a few months, they might, might come back to Ukraine. So as the end of the siege approached, Alla was calm. I was uh, quiet. I-, I was sure that everything would be fine before the Olenivka. Before Olenivka. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. In the days after they surrendered on May the 20th, with Russia able to persuade itself that it had got its hands on some real Nazis, with politicians screaming for them to be executed, the Azov fighters were transported to the dirt and chaos of Alenivka. Konstantin saw them arrive, and he felt a change. Yeah, the atmosphere in camp was changed. The Russian uh, Federation flag was uh, raised up above the colony, and uh, all personnel of the prison was changed to the Russians. They left only few so-called DPR guards there, and all others was changed to Russians. So atmosphere was changed in a moment. So up till now, the locals had been in charge at Alenivka. Russian separatists, as they usually call, from what Konstantin mentioned as the DPR, the Donetsk People's Republic. But now the Russians took over, and not just any Russians. But later, we see very many Russians from FSB, from Russian uh, Committed, very many uh, other guys from different uh, Russian uh, organizations because uh, they were working with, with uh, prisoners of war. Konstantin says the FSB, or the FSB as we'd pronounce it, was running the show now. Not regular prison guards, but the direct descendants of the KGB. You can feel another piece of the jigsaw at Alenivka clicking into place. 
When the Azov fighters at the steelworks agreed to surrender, Russia gave guarantees they wouldn't be mistreated or tortured. For a short while, those guarantees may have held. And when you hear Konstantin talk about the isolator, he's talking about prisoners in solitary confinement being tortured. Russia uh, promised that uh, prisoners of war arrived from Azovstal will not be tortured. And um, it was true for the first few weeks. But later they find uh, a way, uh, as usual, so they were tortured but hidden. If before this uh, moment they tortured uh, prisoners of war uh, on an open air, and uh, anyone can see this, uh, with uh, Azov, uh, they find another strategy. They just take them to the isolator, to the camera, to the room uh, for one man, make uh, very loud uh, music, and uh, kick them so nobody, uh, almost nobody, can see this and hear this. And Constantine noticed something else that I found fascinating and important. They was very scary about Azov. Uh, they were thinking they're like supermans. They were thinking they... Uh, I, I can tell you that uh, then they asked uh, one or two uh, guys from Azov to get to the question, for questioning, uh, they take uh, at least 10 Russian uh, Spitsnaz uh, special soldiers uh, who was guarding these two guys to the room uh, for questioning. It was very scared of uh, Azov Stals. So according to Konstantin, the Russian guards were terrified of the Azov fighters. Even Spetsnaz soldiers, guys from elite units, made sure they outnumbered Azov prisoners heavily when they took them for questioning. It's uh, how the government tell them. It's uh, very bad Nazis uh, who just want to kill Russians, who are using drugs and uh, many other things they was just hearing and even don't think if it's true or not. So they was scared of them. I was thinking that uh, that guys can just uh, take arms and uh, starting to kill them, but it's not uh, true. It's uh, the same guys as me and uh, all others. I don't know why they're so scared. If you're intent on committing a war crime against a group of people, history shows it's a precondition to dehumanize them. The Nazis used to paint their victims as subhuman. Konstantin saw the Russians treating Azov fighters as if they were superhuman. But oddly, I think the effect is the same. Not human. Another piece of the jigsaw falls into place. All of this, Konstantin saw before he was suddenly released from Malenivka on July the 4th and made his way slowly to Germany where I talked to him. What happened after he left is sketchy. We've tried every route we can think of to track down someone who's been released since then, but we've drawn a blank. It seems most likely that nobody has been let out, certainly no one who could give an account of what happened on July the 29th. There have clearly been some messages sneaked out from Alenivka to the outside world through the Telegram app. We haven't been able to verify them, but what they say is that in late July, prisoners were put to work converting an abandoned building on the industrial side of the prison that Nina mentioned, about three or 400 metres from where prisoners were normally kept. It was unusual, because it had never happened before and there didn't seem to be any need for it. As the end of July approached, 
about 200 members of the Azov Regiment, and apparently only Azov soldiers, were moved to the new barracks. Around the same time, satellite images began to show what appeared to be some large holes being dug in the earth inside the prison fence. Nobody can say what for. And that's how things stood as darkness fell on July the 29th, until 11 o'clock, when the prisoners in the regular barracks heard what's been described to us as an explosion, and dozens upon dozens of prisoners of war died in the flames. Who lit the match or primed the bomb that killed them, we don't know. But look at everything that was said and done in the space of not much more than two months, from the siege of Mariupol to the fire at Adlenivka. The men who died were demonised, dehumanised, sent to a brutal camp run by security police and set apart where nobody could see what would happen to them. At the end of all that, when you hear that they died, it doesn't sound surprising. It sounds obvious. My name is Yevgeny Popov, E-V-G-E-N-Y-P-O-P-O-V. And uh, I'm MP, member of parliament, and I'm a journalist. I'm an, uh, an anchor on the Russian state TV for many years, more than 20 years. I booked a call with one of President Putin's highest profile public backers. And so one of the things I want to talk to you about is the use of language in this conflict and where you draw a line and where others have drawn a line and whether language is important in a war like this because what it permits if the language is extreme, I suppose. You just told me about the language of war, right? And uh, uh, it's important. It's really important. My understanding is that you personally justify and explain the, the invasion of Ukraine um, because because you see Russians and Ukrainians as effectively one people. Is that right? Uh, of course, it's one people because my own father lives in Ukraine right now in a territory which is under uh, Kiev's control right now. And of course, if you hear people in Russia, some officials, some authorities called uh, uh, Azov Battalion as an animals, it's close to truth, I can say you. Because even if you read uh, U.S. law, U.S. Congress uh, have recognized Azov Battalion uh, around seven years ago as a uh, neo-Nazi organization. Neo-Nazi. They are fascists, really Nazis. And uh, of course, uh, we're not gonna talk with them. Let me let me just let me just jump in there for a moment because, of course, many years ago, seven eight years ago, I think the Azov Battalion, the Azov Regiment, did have problems with extremists, with neo-Nazis. But the Ukrainian government now says. That it's reformed, that it's been, it was a militia, it was volunteered, it's now been brought into the regular army, and those problems have been addressed. And, and what you're talking about is the history of Azov, where it came no. from, and not what it's like now. It's completely uh, a lie because it was uh, official militia, official. It wasn't volunteers, it was a battalion, uh, but uh, it was Azov, Azov battalion was. Uh, 
the part of the uh, interior ministry for many, many years. And uh, you can see Nazi symbols on their uh, arms right now. You can see uh, and hear, you can hear Nazi uh, slogans right now from them. And uh, of course, uh, people who wants to divide my country for many parts, fascists and Nazis, and they've been Nazi, uh, they are still Nazi. There are many Nazi uh, Nazis in the Ukrainian army right now. You said some of the Azov members, uh, you were happy to describe them as nearly animals. But I guess what interests me is if you are happy to describe and your colleagues are happy to describe members of the Azov regiment, for example, as animals, then to me, it makes war crimes more likely because you don't think you're dealing with human beings, you're dealing with animals and you treat them differently. Oh, um, it's an emotion when I call them uh, near animals. Of course, they are people, but they're war criminals. Uh, they should they must be punished for their war, war crimes. That's it. And if you, I, I hate what you say about emotion, um, but if if you were a, in Olenivka, if you were a, if you had been a guard looking after the members of the Azov regiment who were there, and you hear people in Moscow, members of the Duma, describing Azov as animals, that must affect the way you treat those people. <clears throat> I just told you that I want to see a process. And I know a lot about what happened in uh, Alenovka on uh, July 29th, right? It was a, a crime from uh, Ukrainian army. It was the shelling uh, from Ukrainian side by uh, US-made missiles, which is called uh, HIMARS. Uh, I didn't know why they did it because uh, they have killed their own people but i'm not impressed let me come back to what you said about olenivka because um you've been a correspondent in war zones you know what war looks like you know what weapons can do the the only images that i have seen of olenivka are those that the the russian authorities have released so i've seen only what um what uh but you you can go to russian uh, to, to do a film about it yeah you can but, but i can if you but, want the what the images show is a building that is all the walls are still standing where the beds inside are still arranged in in neat rows and yet the explanation is that a hugely powerful missile, which blows buildings to pieces, landed and killed these people. And, and it's an explanation that doesn't make any sense, does it? Uh, I am not a military expert. I'm a journalist and I'm a politician. And I can say you that we are invited any international organization to inspect what happens in Alenovka. Well, the UN still hasn't been allowed in. No, it's not true. Uh, we are awaiting UN inspectors, but they can't go. I don't know why. We are, we are allowed uh, them to go. Okay, let's go. Uh, come here and uh, investigate it. 
and uh, we give you we will give you everything we will give you uh, a, a freedom of, of moving around Olenovka prison camp everything you want because we know the truth we don't need to kill prisoners of war <laughs> I, I i i don't know what what can be the reason to kill them well because you think they're animals <laughs> you know uh, they are war criminals and uh why we didn't do it uh, earlier <laughs> we need them alive because they should be punished by law by court not by american made uh, uh missile I didn't expect to agree with Yevgeny Popov, but at least we agreed on something. We agreed that language matters. A scientist will tell you that an intense fire can create a vacuum. And that's what's happened at Alenivka. No sound has escaped from there, no hard information since July the 29th. There's still no official list of any kind of who was killed in the fire or who was injured. Under the Geneva Convention, Russia's duty-bound to produce one. And yes, they are still signatories. Allah and all the other relatives of the soldiers who were there are left feeding off scraps, guessing. She thinks Ilya is still alive. Asked rumors and only one connection with uh, volunteers who were freed from uh, Olenivka on 4th of July. And uh, I've sent uh, Ilya's photo and they answered me that they've seen him uh, there in Olenivka. And uh, Ilya was um, moved from Olenivka to unknown place in the middle of June. In the end, whether the UN gets in or not, the truth about Alenivka will come out. Enough people survive that it can't be buried forever. Alenivka may, I think will, take its place alongside other atrocities on the list of war crimes committed in Europe in the last few decades. We thought that list had been closed forever in 1945. And then, just three or four hours, literally before this podcast was going to be released, there was a twist in the story. So this is an update. Nina, the the news came to you quite late last night. What did you hear at first? First of all, I saw a lot of happy posts on Facebook from my journalists and editors' friends uh, who just couldn't believe that it might happen, uh, that 215 Ukrainian prisoners of war, including 108 Azov members, have been exchanged for 55 Russian prisoners of war and the most pro-Russian Ukrainian politician, Viktor Medvedchuk, a big friend of Vladimir Putin, who was accused in the state prison in Ukraine. And in amongst those 215 prisoners of war who released was? There was Ilya Samoylenko, but there was no information about him on my Facebook so far. And I immediately texted Allah because I wasn't sure if he was in or not, because Allah was worried that in the previous exchanges he wasn't on the list. And I just texted her and said, Allah, what about Ilya? 
And she said, yes, Ilya is exchanged as well. And it was such a relief. But Allah still, uh, she's in the U.S. now together with uh, two wives of Azov commanders. And one of them, Denis Prokopenko, has been exchanged and moved to Turkey. And the other one was not. And all of three of them say that, yes, we are glad for those who've been exchanged now and earlier. But we have to remember that there were 2,000 people and most of them are still imprisoned. And Allah is sure, is she, that he's out? Yes, she is sure and... uh, he let her know that he is going home and she posted in the morning that uh, she is uh, quite exhausted but happy and uh, she has a big hope that they will meet at home soon. One of the things we've been waiting for, of course, is for prisoners who were held at Olenivka on July the 29th to be released so that we can get a fuller picture of what happened there on that night. Do you know if any of the 215 people who came out yesterday were at Alenivka in late July. I know that Mariana Mamonova, a pregnant Ukrainian uh, doctor, was in Alenivka in this special isolator called Prison in Prison. But uh, all people whom we talked to during when we made this podcast, they were released from Alenivka before the 29th of July, so we cannot know for sure, but we still can try to talk to them. But we have to remember that these people are quite exhausted and stressed and maybe uh, the press access would be limited somehow. This Law Newscast was written and presented by Kerry Thomas. The reporter was me, Nina Kuriata. The producer was Amy Hopper. Sound design was by Tom Birchill. Hello, I'm Giles Wittell, Tortoise's deputy editor. On the News Meeting podcast, we try to make sense of what should be leading the news with three guests who each pitched the story they think matters most. And once a month, we record a live episode in our newsroom. The next one is on the 27th of March, and I'm going to be joined by the brilliant author and podcaster Elizabeth Day. To come to the event and tell us what you think should lead the news, go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash book. That is tortoisemedia.com forward slash book.